Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to another Sibylline Podcast. I'm Edward Johnson, Sibylline's Head of Global Analysis. Today, I'm joined by our lead Europe-Eurasia analyst, Liana Semchuk, and Alex Lord, our Europe-Eurasia analyst, to discuss Russia's upcoming parliamentary elections on the 19th of September. Welcome both. So, despite rising inflation at a five-year high of 6.7% this month and falling disposable income for many Russians, it's expected that the, the ruling United Russian Party will succeed in remaining the dominant faction within the Duma, uh, despite its own low approval ratings. Liana, could you please briefly describe what you see as the current political outlook for Russia and how likely is it that United Russia will maintain its dominant position within the parliament? Being said, yes, so the parliamentary elections uh, will take place between September 17th and 19th in Russia and will certainly be crucial not only for reaffirming United Russia's grip on the country's political landscape, but these elections will also be crucial and key to any possible future constitutional changes that the Kremlin might be looking to undertake again, potentially before the 2024 presidential elections when President Vladimir Putin may seek another term. So to that end, it is important for United Russia to maintain its current constitutional majority, which in practice means that it needs to have at least 300 out of 450 seats, which would allow it to unilaterally make changes to the country's constitution. So whilst we are not expecting any major surprises during these elections, it is also important to remember that these elections are different from previous ones and that they are taking place against unprecedented challenging times. For example, the general public sentiment towards these elections will be heavily influenced by the very much criticized pension reforms, which were carried out back in 2018. Of course, we also have the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the worsening economic crisis in the country. And cumulatively, all of these things seem to have also widened the gap between the public and the government. And this has very much been reflected in United Russia's poor approval ratings, which, according to the latest polls, depending which one you consult, put the ratings anywhere between 25 to 35 percent. However, as I mentioned before, we are not really expecting any major surprises here, but still the most likely scenario is that United Russia will retain its control of the state Duma and secure at least a simple majority. A slightly less certain, but personally, I think also more likely than that scenario is that it will manage to hold on to its constitutional majority, I think, especially given the strategies that we've seen the government undertake in recent months and certainly in recent weeks in lead up to the poll. I think will definitely aid them in achieving this goal. I will let my colleague Alex also expand on anything that I've already mentioned. But I think one thing that we've definitely seen the Kremlin rely on is the tried and tested method, which is a mixture of incentives and repression, which, of course, um, the ruling party has a disproportionate advantage of compared to others, such as its ability to roll out its administrative resources, as well as rely on repression and selectively target critics of, of the regime. That's a really good point at the end, Eliana. Undoubtedly, we're in a, in a very different position than we were five years ago in, in 2016 in the last elections. And to that point, Alex, how much is the regime going to lean into the tactics of fraud and essentially rigging the vote, do you think? Thanks, Ed. It's an interesting one. I think we've been hearing a, quite a few sort of reports of irregularities already at this stage, sort of reports of people being strongly encouraged or actually forced to register online to vote. Not necessarily being told who to vote for, but being encouraged to go online. And I think 
the fact that these are in many ways uh, digital elections um, in many ways obviously the most most people will probably vote in person is, is is traditional but the kremlin have been very keen to sort of embrace digital technologies particularly under the current prime minister mikhail mishutin i think that potentially provides quite a lot of opportunity for irregularities given that online voting it's not as transparent. It's more difficult for observers, for example, to monitor online voting compared to, you know, watching and monitoring at a polling station. In previous elections, the ruling party have engaged in some sort of questionable strategies to in- increase the chances of the United Russia candidate winning. A lot of this is, is linked to the sort of prevalence of tactical voting, which we'll maybe touch on in a bit. But it's an interesting one that, for example, the unpopularity of the United Russia has often in the past led seemingly independent candidates to run and then immediately upon their victory, immediately defecting over to the United Russia party. So there are numerous tactics and efforts, I think, that will likely be deployed in these coming elections that may well muddy the waters a bit. No, very interesting. And I think you're absolutely spot on there. I think it's going to be a Interesting to see the, the blending of traditional uh, repression and, and the, the newer technologies coming through as well. We're now in the, in the third decade of Putin's rule, obviously, to, to power in 2000. Could either of you speak a little bit about the, the mood in society? Um, obviously, at the beginning of the year, there was a lot of activity around support for opposition activists. Uh, Alexei Navalny, you've seen rising food prices amid falling living standards and, and obviously the, the pandemic, which Liana touched on. And, you know, this has driven discontent, as you alluded to, Alex. How likely are we going to see you know, Belarus mass street protests around this, this election in particular in the short term? Uh, certainly, thanks, Ad. So um, according to the latest surveys, uh, as you mentioned, you know, we've seen uh, issues like price increases, unemployment and rising poverty are the top three key concerns that uh, are considered by Russians to be the most critical. And this is perhaps unsurprising, again, given the fact that the pandemic has impacted these particular issues disproportionately compared to others. And again, this has been definitely reflected in the low government approval ratings and heightened dissatisfaction in society over the last year that I mentioned earlier. But interestingly, also at the same time, there was a poll released earlier this week as well, which highlighted that despite these heightened economic grievances, compared to uh, January 2021, so the beginning of this year in August, the percentage of Russians reporting that they see political and economic protests as an actual possibility has decreased by almost 20%. So these figures kind of are reflective of the fact that not only has government repression likely been quite effective, that that we've seen intensify, especially over the last few months and weeks in the lead up to these elections, but also the fact that despite these heightened economic challenges and this discontent, there is yet to be kind of meaningful, I suppose, protest activity that actually challenges the regime. So I think At the moment, we don't really expect there to be major protests as a result of economic challenges as well as political challenges. However, it is also important to know that we, of course, cannot rule out this possibility entirely. I think unlike in other parts of Eurasia, perhaps in like much of Central Asia, for instance, or even in in Belarus before the most recent presidential election, Elections in Russia, are, even though they're rarely considered to be entirely free or fair, they are still by no means irrelevant. And it is important still for the government to win as many genuine votes as possible. So to that end, I think kind of any mass instances of blatant electoral fraud 
on the same scale potentially that we've seen in Belarus, for instance, could be met with sporadic protests. And interestingly, some statistical studies on the voting patterns in Russia have also predicted that the likelihood of protests will increase if the Kremlin attempts to add more than about 10% to the vote count or something around that, which is what we've seen happen in 2011 when the Kremlin added approximately, I think it was about 12% to United Russia's count. Um, so again, mass protests can't be ruled out entirely, but I think ultimately the main challenge is that there is currently no clear mobilizing opposition figure in these elections, and many uh, individuals in Russia simply do not see an alternative to the current system. And I think that is probably one of the most powerful variables that is currently making it unlikely that we will see this dissatisfaction translate into actual protests. Yeah, I think that you allude to that point there, Liana. What of the opposition? Obviously, Alexei Navalny is now in, in prison. The, arguably the only substantive figure to stand in opposition to Putin and, and wildly popular through his online presence. Alex, could you speak a little bit more about Navalny's smart voting platform, how that's continuing despite his incarceration, and what role, uh, if any, we expect it to play in the, in the upcoming elections? Yeah, so Navalny's smart voting system is an interesting one. I think as it very much sort of reflects the realities of having to operate within a tightly controlled democratic system like Russia's. There are numerous parties in the state Duma, aside from the ruling and dominant United Russia Party, but none of these parties are actually directly connected to Navalny or his organisations, which we need to remember are now actually classified as extremist organisations and have been banned. Now, Navalny and those people that genuinely oppose the current government have always operated very much outside the system. They can't really engage with the system by contesting elections or beating United Russia at the polls. So that's what led Navalny to devise his smart voting system, which is designed basically to provide Russian voters with advice on how to maximise the opposition vote in a given district to give the best chance of unseating the United Russia candidate, whether that be voting for the Communist Party or the Liberal Democratic Party or an independent. Now, this has had some notable success in the past, with tactical voting landing some fairly embarrassing defeats on the government at elections on various levels. So ordinarily, the Kremlin has sort of reluctantly accepted this form of non-systemic opposition, even if it did engage in questionable tactics to counter it, like I mentioned earlier about, you know, fielding independent candidates, which then switched to United Russia after the election. But I think in the last sort of six to 12 months, we've seen the Kremlin become increasingly intolerant of sort of all opposition, with the sweeping arrests, designation of opposition media as quote-unquote foreign agents, and harsh crackdowns, indeed, when protests actually do emerge. I think we're seeing a marked shift in the Kremlin's approach to the opposition ahead of this month's elections, and this is what makes these elections a bit different, as the Kremlin is sort of approaching it from a perspective of, of increasing intolerance to any organised opposition. Uh, this does compare with the fairly grudging acceptance employed by the Kremlin in the past that such opposition did in fact exist and was permitted to exist in some form, even albeit tightly controlled. So it appears that ahead of this election, this has changed. So if we look ahead to the election, I think that Navalny's smart voting platform, I think the fact that it's been banned will obviously prevent many from voting tactically effectively. But that's not to say tactical voting won't occur. It definitely will, with many people finding ways to use the app and other things like it. But there is also reports that Navalny's voting system has actually been cloned and it does seem that this is an, the, the newest attempt to sort of muddy the waters and confuse voters. 
So if you have two rival platforms claiming to be the same thing and advising voters on how best to maximise the opposition vote, I think you can clearly see the potential for splitting votes there, which ultimately will be to the advantage of the ruling United Russia candidate. I think because there are probably going to be uh, numerous irregularities in this month's election, uh, United Russia will probably win in numerous um, regions, but that definitely doesn't mean that there isn't um, scope for successful tactical voting in various places. Thanks very much for that, Alex. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk around the, you know, the issues of the increased targeting of Western tech platforms, which seems to have accelerated over the course of this year. Could you talk about the current state of affairs and any possible developments to look out for after the election for Western businesses? Obviously, we've seen in recent years arbitrary arrests of you know, financier Michael Calvey and the detention of a, an American citizen on, on what appear to be largely trumped-up charges. I mean, where does that uh, leave you know, the, the business environment? Yeah, so the run-up to this election has definitely seen some quite concerning developments as far as Western businesses are concerned. The arrest of Navalny and the protests that we saw after the fact earlier this year, I think, have acted as a sort of catalyst for a trend which we've been monitoring for quite a few years now. Now, the, the Kremlin has made it quite clear that it seeks to increase its control and oversight over the internet and the wider digital space. And this was clearly illustrated in the so-called sovereign internet law, which was passed in 2019. That The basic premise of that is they're trying to sort of establish a way of disconnecting Russia's internet from the wider world. And this idea of internet sovereignty is very important to the Kremlin and should be seen within the context of Moscow's desire to shield itself from external influence and as a means of shoring up its own internal stability. Now, during the protests earlier this year, opposition activists made significant use of social media and other tech platforms to mobilise supporters and to organise demonstrations. And so in the months that followed, we've seen Russia's internet and telecoms watchdog levy numerous fines on Western tech firms for allegedly failing to comply with increasingly onerous legislation and regulation, and which they've beefed up significantly this year. So Apple, Google, Twitter, they've all been targeted by fines for failing to remove quote-unquote extremist content from their platforms, which now does include websites and content linked to Navalny and various other opposition groups, particularly the label of foreign agent, been used significantly this year to label opposition-leaning and media, for example. Now, earlier this month, Russia demanded Apple and Google remove Navalny's smart voting app from their stores. And importantly, not only threatening significant fines if they fail to do so, but they also accused the companies of electoral interference and, quote, taking part in the work of extremist organisations. So that warning, I think, marked a notable escalation in the way that the Kremlin has approached Western tech firms in particular ahead of these elections, with the possibility of criminal liability now a real issue. These accusations clearly reflect that the Kremlin is sort of trying to reframe the issue of social media as a national security issue and does reflect the government's growing intolerance of any opposition. And obviously, the fact that these are Western companies in particular obviously plays into the dynamics here. And I think if we look beyond the election, this sort of trend of increasing control over the internet, but also sort of curtailing um, Western companies' ability to manoeuvre within the Russian market, it's only going to continue, I think, particularly if tactical voting does lead to some successes in this election, or indeed if some protests do emerge, as we saw earlier this year. 
So I think we can expect Western tech firms in particular to continue being targeted by fines and potential service outages. Earlier this year, the government slowed the service speed of Twitter because they allegedly failed to remove certain extremist content. I think protectionist measures as well are very much on the cards. It's very much that this is all part of their sovereign internet strategy, which is trying to encourage investment within domestic Russian tech spheres. And now I think the possibility of criminal liability under national security legislation is a real concern and obviously a much more serious risk that could potentially lead the way to you know, outright bans of whole platforms, for example. Very interesting indeed. And I think you mentioned there, Alex, you know, the, the tensions between Russia and the West. So you're taking a, a step back and, and looking at you know, removed from the business environment. You know, what are the sort of broader geopolitical implications of this election? And, and what is the trajectory of Russia's relationship with the, with the West? Obviously, we've got another election coming up in, in 2024, which will be a, a pivotal moment, whether Putin stays in the presidency or not. How will this leave uh, Russia-West relations in the, in the, in the coming years? Thanks, Ed. Yeah, definitely. So I think at the moment, uh, we can't, we don't really expect any major changes between relations with, with Russia and the West, especially with the United States, for example. Um, as we noted with the arrival of Joe Biden in, in the White House as, as president of the US, the relationships between the two countries has become uh, consistently more strained, although some improvement was noted, mild improvement, I should note, with relation to Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for example, which is something that Alex can touch on more briefly in a moment. But I think also in the most immediate term, for example, I think with regards to Russia's influence in, in Eastern Europe, for example, in countries like Belarus um, and Ukraine, I think that's where all eyes are at the moment, um, especially with relation to, to Belarus, for example, which Russia has essentially been quite instrumental in propping up uh, President Lukashenko since August. August 2020 presidential election, which, as we know, triggered an unprecedented political crisis in the country. And there are a couple of notable events that are coming up and actually happening as we speak um, that would also ensure that tensions with the West remain at their currently heightened level. So, for example, there is a meeting between Lukashenko and Putin on the 9th of September, which once again is prompting speculations that a deal concerning a union state between Russia and Belarus could be signed at any moment given earlier announcement that uh, the so-called roadmaps that would make this possible uh, are nearing completion. But again, this is something that Lukashenko has resisted for years and, you know, not something that we necessarily foresee coming up anytime soon. But it's also not all that necessary, given the fact that Russia's influence in Belarus has been growing at a much quicker pace um, and expanded quite substantially since since the political crisis erupted in Belarus uh, in virtually all aspects of society, such as in Belarusian economy, politically, and also Russia's military presence has expanded in the country, which brings me to my second point that I wanted to mention, which is the joint Zapad 2021 military exercises that are coming up between uh, Russia and Belarus. Um, those are set to kick off on 10th of September and will last until the 16th of September and, of course, will be taking place against a much tenser, so to speak, geopolitical environment, also against the backdrop of heightened tensions with Ukraine, given that earlier this year there were a lot of concerns about Russia's potential invasion of other parts of Ukraine following reports of mass buildup of Russian troops on the eastern border of Ukraine. And so currently, these uh, Zapad 2021 exercises are certainly driving a lot of apprehensions in Kiev. And also in relation to Ukraine and the upcoming elections in Russia, 
of course, uh, Russian passport holders in Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics uh, will be able to participate in these elections, which is something that the Kremlin is also counting on with regards to these votes to be in their favor. And the number of people who are able to vote and hold Russian passports in these territories is also not insignificant and has increased to, I believe, the latest figures put at around 600,000. These individuals essentially will be able to vote remotely via the internet. So, of course, in the most immediate term, this is kind of raising concerns about, again, potential fraud. And uh, of course, this also means that Russia is strengthening its presence in the region. In, in the longer term, we'll be able to further alienate residents in these territories away from Kiev and bring them much closer to, to Russia's influence. So, Liana, off the back of what you just said there, how likely is it, do you think, that Moscow will move forward with a, a more formal annexation of the um, occupied territories of the self-proclaimed People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk? I think at the moment it is still quite unlikely. I think primarily for Russia, the position is to kind of keep Ukraine within its sphere of influence. But I think formal annexation, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And I think at the moment there is no rush for the Kremlin to do so, especially because with the current strategy, it has been working quite effectively and they have been able to use these breakaway territories as a convenient sort of bargaining chip with the West. Um, so at the moment, I don't think we can expect any sort of formal annexation. But as I mentioned, the kind of practice of handing out Russian passports to the residents is a much more effective tool for Russia, I think, at the moment. Worrying development, certainly for the the possible resolution of, of that conflict. Alex, any any final thoughts from you before we uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, I'll keeping a close eye on um, Ukraine and the dynamics with Belarus for certain. Another thing I'm going to be looking at in relation to this, I think, is the upcoming German federal election, which is interestingly happening just a week after the Russian one. So polls at the moment put the Social Democrats in the lead ahead of Chancellor Merkel's CDU, uh, with the Greens coming in at a third. Now, the outcome of these elections is obviously going to be heavily anticipated right across the region. But I think the shape of the coalition that emerges after these elections will play an important role in the future direction of Russo-German and wider Russo-EU relations in the coming years. I think both the Social Democrats and the Greens have been strongly critical of Chancellor Merkel's policy towards Russia, with the recently completed Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the key case in point there, which has caused quite a lot of debate within Germany, within NATO as well, and indeed the EU. Now, both the um, SPD leader Olaf Scholz and the German leader Annalena Baerbock have taken a more critical stance towards Moscow, with Scholz calling for a completely new EU Eastern policy towards Russia. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the political dynamics play out in Germany, um, and how the, the next chancellor navigates this relationship, bearing in mind the, the sort of need to maintain pragmatic economic relations, Russia, now that Nord Stream 2 is finished, while also balancing the need to confront Russian aggression at the EU's border. From, from one election to another, I think that's a very useful addition to, to the end of our podcast there, Alex. And I absolutely agree with what you're saying, and no doubt we will putting out more content uh, on the German elections in the weeks ahead. But for now, I'd just like to, to thank you both very much for what's been a truly formative uh, discussion. Um, uh, Valeria Scooter, who is our Middle East and uh, North Africa analyst, got uh, some key key dates to watch out for in, in the coming weeks. Uh, what's on uh, yours and the team's radar? From one election to another, Qatar will be holding Shura Council elections on the 2nd of October, which will be the first in, in quite some time. Norway will be holding its general election the 13th of September, 
which will have some interesting outcomes for sure in terms of oil exportation quotas for for the country. And uh, Canada will be holding federal elections on the 20th of September, with currently the opposition Conservative Party in the lead, according to polls. Last but not least, we have on our radar the 9-11 anniversary. There will be memorial events planned globally and surely across the Middle East. And so we will be looking closely at sentiment, trends and developments over the weekend. Thank you very much, Valeria. If there's anything in this podcast that's piqued your interest and you'd like to get in touch, feel free to reach out to us at info at And thank you everybody for listening this week.